Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. This is our season three premiere and episode number 86 of the show overall. My name is Tanner, uh, and as usual, I'll be joined here by Taylor. But before we jump into season three, we gained some new patrons during our holiday break that we'd like to thank. So I want to give a shout out to Jessica, Stephanie, and Allie. Thanks so much for supporting the show, and we hope you enjoy all of the bonus content that's over there on Patreon. So with that, let's bring in Taylor. Taylor, welcome back. How's it going? It is pretty good. Excited to start season three. That is, it's cool. I don't know that we ever thought we'd make it this far, but here we are. Yeah, certainly not make it this far with this many people actually listening. Yeah, I think I, I definitely thought that there would be an episode 86. I didn't know if there'd be anyone listening to it. But uh, I don't know if people want to listen to us talk about shipwrecks. I'll, I'll keep doing it. <laughs> Let's do it some more. So we had some time off. We took that extra week yes. uh, of break. That was enjoyable. Just to sort of hang out, chill, watch some football. It's funny, too, because like I still did a lot of like reading and like researching on stuff. But it was more just like, I didn't feel like I had a deadline or I feel like mm-hmm. it was like a work. It was just kind of for fun. So that was, you know, I've got some good ideas for later episodes now. So that was kind of nice to have that break and just enjoy it. Yeah, it was a good way to, to recharge a little bit. So what did you get up to in terms of listening or reading? Um, Well, not a lot of reading. I'm not going to lie. Um, still trying to get through that book about Operation Barbarossa. It's dry. It's rough. But uh, we're almost there. I've learned a lot. But other than that, I caught up on Hell of a Way to Die podcast. It's a really great podcast hosted by Nate Bethay and Francis Horton. They're two ex-U.S. Army soldiers. Nate was an officer. Francis was enlisted. So they have a little bit different perspectives on stuff. But they talk about veteran issues. They talk about political issues. And more and more, they just kind of have dad chats. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of fun just to have them. You know, they're both similar ages to us, a little bit, a couple of years older. But um it's fun watching people kind of go through some of the same issues you go through and hit some of the same milestones and all that. So that's an excellent podcast. If anyone's looking for something, they do a really good job. They have a lot of good guests on there and stuff. I listen to obviously a lot of the Nate Bethay podcast universe. Hell of a way to die is one that I, I kind of listen to on a topic by topic basis. I don't yeah. listen to it religiously, but if there's something particularly interesting that comes up, I'll usually give that a listen. Yeah, it's weird. I associate that one with driving home from work on Fridays because of when it comes out. It's just when I happen to listen to it. So I kind of have like a good association with that one, I think, just because of when it is in the week. Right. <laughs> um, the other thing I've been up to, sports gambling is now legal in Ohio, which means there's a million sports books trying to throw a bunch of money at everyone to get them hooked. Fortunately, I already have a little experience in this. So it's uh, it's been a fun time. Just uh you know, watching some games, throwing a little money out there, seeing what we can do. I don't know. It's a fun hobby. As long as you can uh, manage it and everything, I think it's perfectly fine. But uh, I enjoy it. I think it's, you know, we both love sports and why not throw a 10 on a game and enjoy it a little more, you know? Yeah, I was well aware that uh, gambling's legal in Ohio because every promoted ad on the Beyond the Breakers Twitter feed is now <laughs> about that. So yeah. they are relentless. <laughs> I'm not much of a, a gambler. Um, I've messed around with uh, DraftKings a little bit. I haven't done that really recently. But yeah, that's never been my thing, really. But that's cool. That's a lot of fun for people in Ohio. Yep, it's been a, it's been interesting. Um, it, kind of bad timing with the end of the college football season when it was. But uh, 
we stopped like we were talking about before we started recording we have nfl playoffs today the packers and the steelers both have a path to make the playoffs so that's that's fun and exciting hopefully that goes well very surprising yeah both of them absolutely could even be in the conversation here absolutely so you know it's great i love watching the steelers right now watching kenny pickett get a little bit better each uh each week so it's uh it's fun it's fun to care going into the last week mm-hmm. what about you what have you been up to um reading wise i finished the book guy mannering by walter scott that is the i think i counted that's the seventh of his that i've read he's got quite a few some of which are a lot harder to track down like there's he has some novels that i've i've never even seen in physical form as always with walter scott a lot of entertaining passages he really likes to belabor a lot of his points but in a very fun way that wasn't one of my favorite from him. It kind of just struck me as kind of a forgettable one from him. A little bit of fun trivia, though, about Guy Mannering. Are you familiar with the Dandy Dinmont Terrier? Yes, I have. Uh, I have seen them in the flesh before. Yes. Yeah, you have that novel to thank for their name. Huh, I did not know that. Dandy Dinmont is kind of like a supporting character in that novel. And he's got a bunch of dogs. I am not super familiar with Walter Scott. I know I've never read it. Did he do Ivanhoe? Is that him? He did Ivanhoe. That one's really entertaining. That's one that is sort of presented as a, as a somewhat historical novel, and he definitely is very free with his history. I, I like a lot of his historical novels. Those are those are my favorite ones. Like Waverly is set in the background of the the Jacobite Rising in 1745. Old Mortality is another of my favorites from him. That one is set um, in like the late 1600s with some of the remnants of the Covenanters who are more mm. more closely associated with like the English Civil Wars, but still are sort of kicking around as late as like the 1680s. So those are usually my favorites. I think he he weaves his characters well into a historical tale and sort of think the best historical fiction writers, they find those gaps and they find mm-hmm. a way to fill them interestingly. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's times there's people where we don't know what they were up to here. We don't know what was going on here. Let's fill this gap with with something interesting to write my novel about. Yeah, I think the best historical like fiction type stuff, like you were saying, it fills that gap and it's like, well, surely someone experienced this, like in this whole thing. So that was really good. You know, I, I finished that up. It was again, it was entertaining, like all of his are. Probably not one that will stick out too much in my memory. Um, the other thing was I watched most of the series 1899. Okay. I, I still just have the finale to watch. How was that? That's something I've been interested in. I'm sure we could always do a bonus episode about that at some point. Really liked it. Obviously, it's interesting for you know people who are interested in ships. Um, also, for people interested in language, you get a very good mix. Uh, obviously, it's predominantly in English, but there's also lots of German, French, lots of Danish, uh, Cantonese, some Polish. I'm probably even forgetting some here, but yeah, it's like two of your favorite things at this point. Yeah. I mean, it kind of has a similar appeal to like Inglorious Bastards, where if you like, you know, foreign language, that's a, that's a fun movie to watch because you get to hear several of them. Bongiorno. It definitely has some big shifts from, you know, rather than being like a period piece, it Mm -hmm. it definitely has some very, very different elements to it. Is there a horror element or is it more suspense? Not really horror per se. Um, Katie and I were discussing it, and and honestly, it has some elements that are similar to The Expanse. Okay. Um, getting into some of the later episodes, I don't want to say too much, 
but um, but yeah, it's uh, lots of lots of fun little twists. Hopefully, it gets rescued from its cancellation. Um, I would love for Amazon or someone to like swoop in and and bring. Yeah, I mean that that would be another connection to the Expanse because that's basically what happened there was that show was canceled and then Amazon came in and and rescued it and actually in many ways made it a lot better. Right in its Amazon form. I am really disappointed because I've almost started the series a couple times. Then when I saw it was already not renewed for season two, I was like, huh. I assume it'll probably wrap up with a maybe hopefully a decent little bow on it. Hopefully there's at least an arc in the first season that could be satisfying. Yeah. Oh, one other thing I wanted to add for our kind of media or just what we've been up to. I did get to go to the Air Force Museum in Dayton yesterday yes. um, with the kids and Darcy and one of our friends. And it was a lot of fun. And I did. I posted those pictures on Instagram where I have I'd never noticed it before, but they have a Fritz flying bomb there, which we talked about in was it episode 49, the HMS Egret. Yes. So that I thought that was, you know, you never know when you're going to see stuff with connections back to a lot of this. And I certainly didn't expect to see a lot of maritime stuff at the Air Force Museum, but there it was. I assume that's probably something that they've had there for a while. I've absolutely walked past that so many times and never yeah. noticed it. Like it's, I can tell you exactly where it's at and it, it, it's been there. But uh, yeah, I, I just put that together as I saw it. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's really cool to draw a connection back to the podcast and especially for something so historical and uh, interesting. Yeah, we can't plug the, uh, the Dayton Air Force Museum enough. If you're ever in the Dayton area, the Cincinnati area, definitely go out of your way to go to the Air Force Museum. <laughs> yeah, it has got to be one of the coolest free museums that I've ever been to. Yeah, the amount of stuff they have there is truly awesome. Yeah. Okay, well... You know what's not awesome? Let's get into Season 3 here, then. Uh, so to start things out, wanted to shake things up a little bit. We're going to be talking about a type of vessel that we've never covered before, and that is an oil rig. Specifically, the mobile offshore drilling unit Ocean Ranger. This is... I'm pretty sure our oldest listener request that we've yet to actually do an episode on. So Xander, we hope you're still listening. Thank you for highlighting this story to us. We hope you enjoy it. I, I feel like this is definitely one that maybe when that request was first made, probably felt like almost outside of what we were capable of doing like well. And I think we've, we've gotten a lot better at being able to do these things. So yeah, I'm excited to see how this, uh, how this goes. While it is a very different type vessel, we have many of the same issues. We're going to be able to make a lot of connections back to previous things that we've discussed here. Uh, So main sources for this episode are the U.S. Coast Guard report on the incident, the Canadian Royal Commission reports on the incident, a book by Mike Heffernan called Rig, an oral history of the Ocean Ranger disaster, and another book by Susan Dodd called The Ocean Ranger Remaking the Promise of Oil. This is perfect. You have so much material to work with on this one with two incident reports and then two like well-done books. This is one that's very well documented, which is good. It gives you a lot to to really work with for our purposes on the show. And it gives you also a ton of different perspectives, especially in that Heffernan book you've got. It's basically interview-based, people writing you know, what they experienced with it or around the situation. And the Susan Dodd is is a bit more of an overarching look at it. And then also a lot of the lead up and some of the the aftermath, the legal ramifications of it. So I think between those two books, you get a very comprehensive look at this disaster and, and really the industry as a whole. 
Ocean Ranger was a self-propelled semi-submersible drilling rig, and at the time of her construction in 1976 at Mitsubishi Heavy Industries Yard, she was the largest rig of this kind in the world. I love these big like Japanese companies like Mitsubishi that make like toasters, but also oil rigs. And zeros in the world war in world war ii yeah much like mercedes and bmw we don't talk about what they were up to in like the late 30s and 40s everyone has a checkered past yeah so ocean ranger was designed owned and operated by odeco engineers incorporated uh that's ocean drilling and exploration company uh she was 396 feet in length and 262 feet in beam that's a big beam number it's a bit odd talking about those measurements those parameters here because this isn't you know, this is an oil rig. It's not like ship shaped. So it's weird <laughs> to be talking about like the beam on this thing. Yeah. Uh, she also measured 337 feet in height. So this is the distance from the top of the derrick to the bottom of her pontoons. Okay. This is one of the unique aspects of this type of vessel. So these pontoons, they would sit about 50 to 80 feet below the surface of the water. These were two pontoons arranged in catamaran style and attached to the platform by eight vertical columns. I've just realized that I have zero concept of how all this actually works. And like mm-hmm. now that you're saying this, I'm like, oh, that kind of makes sense. But like, I could not have told you that. Yeah, all the diagrams were definitely helpful for this one. I had no idea what an oil rig looked like below the water. Honestly, like my only reference to oil rigs is just like what you see in the news. And it's just them sitting there usually. Yeah, it's know? like the platform. Um, and then mm-hmm. kind of what's under underneath the water is a secret. <laughs> so she had a crew capacity of uh, 100, but this was typically in the 80 to 85 range. Okay. So since this is a new type of vessel, we'll talk a little bit about the design some more. The semi-submersible layout has a lot of advantages for offshore drilling, most notably their stability and the protection they offer to their crews. Okay. Those pontoons contain ballast or like a ballast tank. They They can. Uh-huh. Just like a ballast tank on a surface ship, they can be used to adjust the rig's height, uh, how it's riding in the water. Okay, that makes sense. This keeps the operational areas of the ship, like the drilling deck, the landing pad, crew quarters. It keeps those well above the surface of the water. Since the pontoons sit well below the surface, these rigs are a lot more stable than a standard surface vessel. Huh, that's really interesting because you don't think of it like that, but it does make sense that if you put the pontoons down like deep... It becomes way more. You don't have that rolling effect that the top of the water has. I guess the connection that I was I was thinking of it kind of has the same function as the foundation of a house, right? Yeah, whereas, you know, you go down a little bit deeper and you get much better stability. That's interesting. For contrast, I was looking also. They do have things called drill ships that they use for some of these purposes. With those, you're having to deal with all the same stability issues you would with a regular surface vessel, right? Um, So before arriving at the Hibernia field in 1980, Ocean Ranger had a fairly varied deployment history. Built in 1976, her first deployment was in the Bering Sea and the Gulf of Alaska. Um, She was there through 1977. From 1979 to 1980, she operated at Baltimore Canyon, uh, which is an undersea canyon off the coast of the Delaware, Maryland area. And in 1980, she spent a few months off the coast of Ireland before arriving at the Grand Banks off the east coast of Canada. I guess I also don't think of these things as traveling that much. You know what I mean? Like I, I always think of them as very stationary, but it makes sense that they're they're mobile. Yeah, honestly, before this, I, I didn't know that these things functioned as independent vessels. Right. 
And some of them don't, even the mobile ones. Some of them do have to be towed like a barge. But ones like this, the reason that they're kind of unique is that they're fully independent in terms of transportation. Talking a little bit about oil drilling on the Grand Banks. Uh, So in the 60s and 70s, Canada began to search for oil off the east coast of Labrador and Newfoundland. And in 1979, oil was discovered in the Hibernia field of the Grand Banks. Um, So obviously, further exploration was needed to establish the size of the oil field. And Mobile Oil was engaged in this work of mapping the oil field at the time of the incident we're going to discuss today. Uh, The Ocean Ranger was employed in drilling what are called delineation wells, Mm -hmm. which my understanding of the process is that you've got these rigs that are pretty mobile, basically poking around in the seafloor, drilling in and seeing where are we striking oil. This just gives them an idea of the size and shape of the field they're actually dealing with. It's an aspect of oil drilling I'd never really considered. I kind of always imagined it being a bit like a like a high C. You just poke the straw, straw in it. and suck until it's empty. <laughs> Whereas, like, actually, a lot of work has to go into mapping. Okay, where where can we drill to make sure that we're you know not wasting time and seeing where do we hit oil, where do we not, and then gives them an idea of what this looks like. Yeah, that is interesting. Like that idea of mapping the field and and knowing. I imagine to some degree, like, is this field even worth really pursuing? Because if it's super small or super spotty, like, it might be more trouble than it's worth. That also contributes to later on, we'll talk, you know, this is an oil rig disaster that it doesn't become an environmental disaster. Mm -hmm. And this is basically why, you know, this is not an active pumping oil rig. This is one that's exploring and trying to see where, where this stuff is. So something interesting here was the personnel structure on board. With this different type of vessel comes a pretty different structure of the crew that's on board. This is part oil rig, part maritime vessel. There's a Mm -hmm. blend in skill sets and responsibilities between the marine aspects and the drilling aspects. So we mentioned Odeco already. Um, Odeco was responsible for the crew, so manning the vessel, the vessel's operation, and the vessel's navigation. So they're more of like the maritime side of things? They're, yeah, they're they're more of the basically anything that is involved with the rig itself uh-huh. is sort of their purview. Uh, the other big company involved here is Mocan is how they refer to. That's just Mobile Oil of Canada. Boo. <laughs> Boo. Um, they're responsible for getting crew to and from the rig. So this is done primarily via helicopter. That Mark Wahlberg documentary taught me a lot about that. Is that the the Deepwater Horizon one? Yes. I haven't seen that one. Unfortunately, he was unable to stop that also. And he was there for that. Also responsible for materials um, and supply. Uh, And then also supervising the construction of the well itself. The Coast Guard report sums that up basically saying, in general, operations that affected the rig are the responsibility of Odeco. And operations that affected the well were the responsibility of Mocan. The reason for this is that mobile held the lease to the drilling area. Uh-huh. If you think of it as it's basically their territory, but the hardware, the rig itself that they needed to get to it was Odeco. So there there needs to be a lot of overlap there. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Like like Mobile's not interested in like owning a ship and operating a ship. They just want the oil. Communication's a big deal. Coordination is is important. Mm-hmm. Almost every decision that's made on the ship, you need collaboration between these two. Um, the senior Odeco representative on board had the title of tool pusher. 
Uh, <laughs> I think a, I found a new job title. It's a very, it's a funny name, funny name, <laughs> uh, tool pusher. And he had direct supervision over drillers, floor hands, roustabouts, derrick men, crane operators, electricians, radio men, electronics technicians, mechanics, the medic, welders, subsea technician, and control room operators. Roustabouts? I didn't quite look up what that was. I think it's just like a general. Uh, that does feel like you're just the guy that they tell, hey, go stand over there. Sort of like a deckhand, I guess. Uh-huh. So what's interesting here is that, you know, typically with a a standard maritime vessel you have one captain or master and he's always the master regardless Uh of where the ship is or what it's doing not the case here the tool pusher was considered the overall in charge person on the rig while it was stationary while the ship's master who is also an odeco employee was in charge while the vessel was in transit i don't think i like that idea i want one person like there needs to be a person like The captain of the airplane is always the captain of the airplane, whether it's on the ground or in the air. And there are some issues that arise from that where you can see where just on kind of a personal level, it might not always work smoothly if you're just kind of tagging in and tagging out. Okay, you're the boss today. I'm the boss the next day, because then comes in issues of experience. You know, if Mm -hmm. the tool pusher is just far more experienced on the rig than, you know, say the master who maybe he's new to it. Is the tool pusher really going to defer to the master's judgment when he probably objectively knows better in some situations? Right. It does lead to some issues. Um, So the senior Mocan representative was the senior drilling foreman. So again, he's overseeing the well itself. Most of the senior personnel from Odeco were American, I think with one exception. Um, And the experience of these individuals was mostly with land-based drilling operations uh, and a lot of that was in texas i would imagine that there's a lot of overlap but there's also probably some really big differences in yes uh, uh you know maritime drilling and land-based drilling yes especially when it comes to things like taking on water i would just think that like however hard it is to do this on land it's harder to do it at sea for sure there's a lot of complications that come from that Kind of like with the Noronic, that was our season two premiere, we have a less severe precursor incident that serves as a little bit of an indicator of things to come. So on Saturday, February 6th of 1982, Ocean Ranger experienced a listing incident serious enough to warrant the crew getting to their lifeboat stations and preparing to evacuate. Quoting from Dave Russell, a roustabout on the Ocean Ranger at the time, I happened to look at the rail in relation to the horizon. It was obvious that we had a list. Right away, I went into Jack Jacobson's office, the new tool pusher Mobile had sent over from Sedco 706. There's a problem on deck. We're not right. It doesn't feel right. We're listing too far to the port side. Russell was in charge of the forward lifeboat and realized that one man was missing. Heading below deck to find him, he describes the following scene. Below deck, no one had heard the alarm. There were about a dozen foghorn speakers right off the drill room that went all through the rig via the PA, including the accommodation rooms. The supervisors wouldn't turn them down, so we'd either disconnected them or stuffed something in them to muffle the noise. I went through the moon pool, the control room, out the sack room, and into the cement room. The missing man was in there scrubbing the floors and didn't have a clue that anything was going on. I think that's such an interesting quote because it, it kind of highlights one of the major issues here. You know, you've got people not not panicking, but people getting to the lifeboats because this is a possible evacuation scenario. 
and you head downstairs and dude's just doing his job, scrubbing the floor because he has no idea anything's happening. I mean, it's also you're seeing that practices and procedures aren't really being monitored if we're unplugging the PA system and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like you're starting to see that lack of like resource management, really, right? It reminds me a little bit of things we discussed for the um the Karina C, that crushing incident we had where mm-hmm. You, you see these things become standard practice and you know this wasn't the first day that everyone decided to not do safety well and it's like the same as when you see like stories about like a nightclub fire where like emergency exits are chained shut oh we had a problem with someone you know dining and dashing or whatever and running through a door so we're gonna lock it and <laughs> we did that for five years but oh oops sorry and now my shirt waist factory has burned down I was going to say uh, Great White came and played a show, but same thing. Um, so a major factor we're discussing today is the culture of safety, or lack thereof, present on the rigs with a special focus on Ocean Ranger. Uh, so Russell, that same speaker, he describes the safety culture on the Ranger by saying... The list was corrected, and we had what could loosely be described as a safety meeting in the recreation room. Jimmy Counts was there as well as a safety engineer from Louisiana. He was explaining what had happened when Jimmy cut in. Don't forget, y'all, this rig can't sink. He then walked out. (laughs) Those famous words of, this can't sink. (laughs) (laughs) I worked on the Ranger right from square one, but I never once looked inside a lifeboat, not until that Saturday afternoon. On Sundays, we would have our safety exercise. You would finish your dinner, get your life jacket, wait for the horn to sound, and then just stand around, smoke a cigarette, and have a little bullshit session. But you didn't get in a lifeboat or start the motor. When I left the Ranger, I went to the Zapata Ugland. First thing, the captain brought me up and sat me in a lifeboat and showed me everything I needed to know. Nobody showed us anything on the Ranger. And those quotes also come from the the Mike Heffernan book, uh, Rig. You kind of get some... Not conflicting, but some different opinions reading through these. Some guys highlight that the Ocean Ranger was particularly lax with these safety things. Uh, Some of the others kind of describe it as, you know, hey, there was everyone was not doing a great job of this. Ocean Ranger was no different. Mm -hmm. Either way, you're kind of left with the scenario where there's going to be safety problems. I mean, I think, too, with things like this, different leaders have different emphasis and like clearly the captain or not captain, I don't know, whatever you call it, whoever's in charge of the Zapata Ugland clearly at least cared about safety a little bit to show people the basics. So like clearly there's different levels of, you know, how serious are we taking this? That's one of the most interesting parts of Heffernan's book is some of the people talking about how they were hired, how they were brought on. You've got people with minimal or no expertise basically walking to it, walking into an office. Maybe they know someone, maybe they have connection, getting hired, going out the next day to the rig uh, training is basically non-existent. It's almost a hundred percent on the job training. Mm-hmm. This isn't where you're you know, sit- sitting at a computer for a couple of days first to, to learn the ropes of the procedures and everything. And this is a dangerous job to be doing on the job training for. Yeah. Lots of discussions of people, you know, losing hands, losing fingers, breaking legs, um, with all this heavy machinery and very little, training or safety precautions being employed. It's interesting hearing him talk about how when they would do their 
um, safety exercises. Like <laughs> you eat dinner, you get your life jacket, you stand around, you smoke. We've all been part of things like that, where you're mm-hmm. just going through the motions to check a box for something that probably should be given a little more, you know, attention. You you know when it's happening and people aren't taking it seriously. Uh, so this brings us to the incident itself. This is February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1982. Uh, so this is the following Monday after that listing incident that we just okay. described. Okay, so that I when I scanned the notes, I wasn't sure how close those were. So they're very close. Yes, this is about a week. Okay. So Ocean Ranger was drilling in the Hibernia field, uh, about 166 miles east of St. John's, Newfoundland. Uh, this is at the well that's labeled J34. So like we said before, this is exploratory drilling. So there's no actual oil being pumped out here, which is why this doesn't turn into more of a deep water horizon scenario. Okay, that makes sense. So at this time, Ocean Ranger had a crew of 84. Uh, so 15 of these were Americans, all of whom were Odeco employees. And, you know, this is most of the senior management personnel. Uh, there was one British citizen. The remaining 68 were Canadians, with 56 of those coming from Newfoundland. I would imagine a lot of those guys probably know each other. Like Newfoundland's not that populated of a place and this is such specialized work that i imagine it's a pretty small community of people yeah you definitely get that sense from from reading about it reading some of the guys who uh, weren't on this particular rig especially because there was a lot of rotation among the rigs so a mm-hmm. lot of these guys they weren't you know fixed on one particular rig they might be on one one day or one week and then be shifted over to you know cover someone's shift or you know to to fill a spot so there's there's really a lot of community there and then also just with the um with newfoundland this industry itself this is another one of those big community impact stories that Mm -hmm. we've talked about with a lot of our great lake stories where you'll have you know all or most of the crew from the same town Uh, kind of similar in the impact it has on this community there were two other rigs operating nearby we've sort of mentioned them already that was the Sedco 706 and the Zapata Ugland. So in addition to the other rigs, each rig also had an assigned supply vessel in the area. So Ocean Ranger was supported by the Seaforth Highlander, Sedco 76 supported by the Bolton Tor, and Zapata Ugland was supported by the Norden Tor. It's interesting that they're all kind of operating right there together. That does make sense now how e- easy it is to shift around to different rigs and stuff and I'm sure it's just a brief helicopter ride over. Yeah, and they're relatively close. I think, I I believe it was the Sedco that was described as being, I think, like seven or eight miles from Ocean Ranger. So within visible distance, you know, depending on conditions, it's kind of a quick hop over on the helicopter. Important thing, very important to note here, is that these ships are on standby for supply and occasional transportation purposes. They're not designed or equipped for rescue operations. And that's going to play a very big role in final outcome, mm-hmm. the incident. Typically, transportation to and from the rigs was done via helicopter. Uh, ships, however, were used if the weather conditions were too foggy. So at 8 a.m. on the morning of the 14th, there had been a warning issued for a strong winter storm expected later that day and into the night. Uh, this is described in the Coast Guard report as a major Atlantic cyclone. That doesn't sound like a time I'd want to be on an oil rig. Not going to lie. No, but at the same time, you know, this is this is kind of why these things are designed to to be as stable as they are. Right. 
Ocean Ranger is even described as sort of having a reputation for drilling longer and in harsher conditions than some of the other rigs, uh, just because they're that confident in how stable this thing is. Oh, good. Nothing bad has ever happened <laughs> in any of the other stories about ships like that. Bad weather Bob of the SS Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> so Ocean Ranger continued drilling until around 4.30 p.m., at which point she hung off. So okay. hang off is the term here, uh, talking about disconnecting the drill and retracting it because you don't want that to still be connected as the vessel's getting tossed around in the weather. That makes sense. That is one of the advantages to these semi-submersibles is that with that added stability, you can drill in conditions where other vessels would have to stop. Okay. Again, you don't want that drill head getting wrenched around uh, damaging the drill head, possibly damaging the well, and then that's where you might get into more of a Deepwater Horizon situation. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so a little after 7 p.m., the other vessels in the area, they started to hear radio chatter from the Ocean Ranger referring to broken glass and water, as well as issues with switches and valves behaving oddly. Hmm. Uh, so when they talk about radio chatter, they're talking about the VHF radio. So are gear. they talking about internal chatter? amongst the crew on the ranger my understanding of it is that this is they all have access to the same channels i mm -hmm. assume that each channel was maybe designated for each ship um, but they can hear what's being discussed uh, on this vessel okay so the drilling foreman of the sedco 706 described this as follows the reply was given that everything is fine that they are mopping up water and picking up the glass there seemed to be some relief in their voices. Everything seemed to be fine in the control room. A couple hours later, just after 9 p.m., Ocean Ranger informed the other vessels that a window, uh, so in the context here, this is this is called a port light, okay. had broken in the ballast room, and that they had taken some water, but that it wasn't a serious issue. There were some other issues of concern, though, as overheard by Sedco 706's barge engineer. Sometime after 9 o'clock, we heard that they were getting shocks off of different panels, and they wanted the electronic technician to come down to the control room, and at some point along the way, they said valve or valves were opening and closing on their own. This was a voice on a portable VHF radio, and I, myself, and the watch on duty, we recognized the voice as the ballast control room operator. So despite the severity of this storm and the issue with the broken port light, Things appear to be basically business as usual. Like I would imagine a lot of this like isn't atypical, right? Like you're going to have some problems in weather. Like mm -hmm. you've got stuff that gets damaged, water gets in. I would imagine that most of like this is like common issues in heavy weather. This port light, this is very very small. I mean, this is a porthole essentially. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, the, this is getting into the investigation. This is one of those things where a lot of people really struggled to see how something so small could have brought down this enormous oil rig. Yeah. I mean, I think back to like dead wake and Eric Larson points out how a lot of the, you know, the cabin uh, crew on board the ship, their job was to make sure portholes were shut because, you know, passengers would open them all the time. Yeah. And then you think back to like Empress of Ireland where quite literally that helped the ship sink faster. So right. like, it's amazing how much water can come in such a small space. So we said, you know, business as usual at 1130, Ocean Ranger had even submitted their routine weather report that they normally would. So they're okay. going through all the same reports. Certainly no one's in panic or evacuation mode 
up to this point. But at 1 a.m., Mobile Senior Manager reported that Ocean Ranger had developed a list and shortly after this called the Seaforth Highlander to request that they move closer to possibly provide emergency support. Yeah, I would imagine that's a pretty big call, especially with the weather being what it is and wanting that vessel to venture further out into it. These support vessels are basically on standby in the vicinity of the rig. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's in these conditions, though, it's still going to take them considerable time to get to where they would be useful. Right. So within 10 minutes of this call, the situation developed to the point that Ocean Ranger began issuing mayday calls. It's a pretty big escalation. Yeah. So if we think of this going, nothing super concerning until 1 a.m. And then within 10 minutes, this is... This is a, a Mayday situation. Uh, so at 1.30 a.m., the final call from Ocean Ranger went out, informing those listening that the crew was heading to lifeboat stations and that if they called back and got no response, the crew had abandoned the vessel. Huh. From Mike Cole, motorman on Sedco 706. For context here in this quote, Sedco had been struck by a particularly large wave, which was estimated at 100 feet. Uh, and this caused some minor damage to Sedco. We heard through the grapevine that the wave had hit the Ocean Ranger 2, and she was experiencing some difficulties. A smashed porthole and stability problems. There was confidence it would be resolved because any issues we'd ever had were. Sometime around 1, Jack Jacobson called me over to inform us that whatever problems they were having couldn't be resolved. Then half an hour later, another message. They were leaving the rig and wanted us to relay a mayday. That's the last we ever heard of them. So as a designated support vessel for Ocean Ranger, Seaforth Highlander was relatively close and moved in to attempt rescue if possible. Again, that's not what these ships are designed for. Mm -hmm. You know, they can give it a shot, but they're really there. You know, if they're going to be picking up people... It's, it's usually going to be in a, a transfer situation from the rig to the ship. So at 2.21 a.m., Seaforth Highlander sighted a flare from a lifeboat and tried to reach it. In the words of Jerry Higdon, as quoted in Mike Heffernan's book, Rig. Just before we got to where the rig was supposed to be, I saw lights through the snow and a flare went up off our starboard bow. As we made our wades towards it, I saw another. That's when we came upon the lifeboat. There was a large crack in the bow of her, and she was taking on water. The press later reported we'd run her down, but I'm sure that hole was there before I ever laid eyes on her. A hatch in the lifeboat opened, and someone emerged. The mate and four seamen. I couldn't see who. Threw a life ring with a rope attached. The guy caught it and tied it to the railing of the lifeboat. The next thing, seven or eight of them came out and stood along the gunwale. Then the lifeboat just tipped over and they were all thrown into the water. The mate later told me he reached out and almost had one guy. He was that close. In the Coast Guard report, there are some further details of the rescue attempts from the Highlander. The captain of the Highlander is also quoted as saying, We were still floating along the lifeboat. And after maybe a minute or two, a half or two minutes, it was very difficult to estimate. The men clinging to that boat began to let go and they drifted down my port side. At that point, I shouted down to the mate on the deck via the loud hailer system to throw over a life raft. I saw the men running up forward on my deck to go after the life raft, and they threw the life raft over the side, which inflated right beside the men in the water. 
No effort was made by any man in the water to grab a hold of the life raft. No effort was made by any of the men in the water. No apparent effort was made by any of the men in the water to reach the lines which my men had been throwing to them after the boat capsized. So here's an issue we've seen before. People in the water who are close enough to be rescued, but they're hypothermic to the point of being incapacitated. And Mm -hmm. they can't actively participate in their own rescue. Like, like what a tragic story right there that you're literally, you know, you've thrown a ring to these people and they're, they're tying it off and like they get tossed into the water. That actually comes up later in the the inquiry, the investigation of talking about training in rescue situations. This was a known issue with these lifeboats that if you tied them off to something, they would capsize. That came out in some of the testimony from some of the the higher ups saying, well, yeah, like that, you know, they shouldn't have done that because we knew that that would capsize it. Apparently, none of these guys knew that. Apparently, this was never included in any of their training. Right. Yeah, I think that's what's so scary here is like, there's not a way to rescue these guys Mm -hmm. short of the supply ships. Like that is their only option. And yeah, these just aren't set up with stuff to rescue people from the water. Yeah, I think that's something that we don't talk about enough in some of these stories. Like when you hear stories of like a passenger liner like rescuing people that's not what it's meant to do and mm-hmm. that's really dangerous and difficult i mean think back to um the movie that we just did where the one the cook is killed mm-hmm. by basically being flung into the side of a ship that's trying mm-hmm. to rescue him so yeah you know like it's it's like we say with launching lifeboats like none of this stuff is easy or safe it's all very dangerous so the supply ship Bolton Tour showed up on scene around 2.45. Uh, so quoting from Thomas Kane, a deckhand on board. A rig in the dark is lit up like Christmas. I was on the port side with the watchman and saw just three or four lights in the distance. Then several containers floated by. Coming up on the rig's starboard quarter, there was a break in the storm and it was clearly visible that waves were washing over the helideck. We circled but found nothing. No survivors, no lifeboats. I think that's a a vibrant scene painted there where, you know, sailing out in this weather, expecting to see a rig the way that you expect to see it. And when they finally see it, it's got waves on the helicopter deck. Yeah, that has <laughs> that almost has like a zombie movie quality to it where you see mm-hmm. something that isn't the way it should be. So the captain of the Bolton Tour is quoted in the Coast Guard report uh, saying... We must have arrived in the location of the bodies at 3.15, 3.20, I don't know, somewhere about there. And we were then working until around 6 o'clock when three or four of my men were thrown into the winch house. Another one was dumped on top of the tugger. And I think they were all getting pretty scared by this time. And they were achieving absolutely nothing, really. Although I have every admiration for the attempts they made. Yeah, I feel like that's such a tough situation for everyone involved. Like, you're doing everything you can as someone trying to rescue these people. And there's just not a lot that you can do. And it seems kind of like a shrewd deployment of their resources, limited though they may be from the captain, saying, we're going to be out here until I feel that my people are at risk. Right. And then we're we're, going to call it because we're not getting anything done. Well, and also, like, you don't want to create another rescue situation mm-hmm. where even more people have to come out. I mean, there, there's yeah. always that balance, right, of you don't want the the rescuer to have to become rescued. It would be different, maybe, if there's men in the water actively needing yeah. to be rescued, and that's just Absolutely. not the case here. Absolutely. When the 
Nordentor showed up on scene. They radioed saying, where's the ranger? We don't have her on radar. So there was some hope among the crews that ranger had simply drifted off mm-hmm. of where she'd been, but that was pretty quickly determined that she had sunk instead. Helicopters were involved in the search efforts, but the first one wasn't able to arrive on scene until 430 with another arriving at 455. Also, these are the same helicopters that are used to transport the crews to and from the rigs. So these are not rescue helicopters. Yeah, so like at best, you're able to locate survivors and maybe coordinate or direct something. But you have the same problem. Like No one is equipped to actually rescue people in anything but probably perfect conditions. So yeah, you know, these weren't able to contribute significantly to the search efforts. Pilots were putting themselves at pretty considerable risk being out in mm-hmm. those conditions. But again, like we saw with some of the rescue vessels, Ultimately, the the risk outweighs any sort of benefit here. Right. So ultimately, no survivors were recovered from the sinking of the Ocean Ranger. A total loss of 84 lives and 22 bodies would be recovered from the water. Of course, that brings us into the aftermath and some of the investigation portions of the story. Uh, Because Ocean Ranger was a U.S. flagged vessel, she fell under the inspection jurisdiction of the U.S. Coast Guard. I was wondering how the U.S. Coast Guard like was able to issue a report on this. That makes mm-hmm. sense, though. Um, so the Coast Guard report was issued on May 20th, 1983. It's about 15 months after the disaster. Mm-hmm. So the first conclusion listed by the Coast Guard was that a structural failure did not sink the Ocean Ranger. Okay. So they ruled that out right away, and that's particularly important to establish in the context of the time. Just under two years before this, the Norwegian semi-submersible drilling platform Alexander Kjelland had capsized after suffering a fatigue crack in one of its bracings, which resulted in the loss of 123 lives out of a crew of 212. Seems like a massive crew compared to what we're talking about. Yeah, and I don't know know size-wise if she was comparable or or not. That might be one that we look at in the future. Mm Mm-hmm. The investigation into that incident concluded that the rig exhibited a lack of structural redundancy, uh, which resulted in sequential failures of key structural elements. Uh, Once one thing breaks, now you're adding stress to other things that don't have support and the whole thing collapses. That feels like an episode of, well, there's your problem just waiting to be made. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, establishing that that wasn't a factor here was basically helped to demonstrate this wasn't just a repeat of the Killand. The failed port light in the ballast control room initiated the string of events leading to the sinking. So this very, very small, small issue causes a lot of problems, ultimately. Water in the control room caused either electrical malfunctions or the perception of electrical malfunctions. Hmm. That's interesting. So that kind of is included as a caveat, taking into account the fact that the crews just weren't highly trained on these systems right they basically knew how to use them in an everyday run-of-the-mill situation but if anything outside the ordinary happened they just weren't equipped to handle it there was very 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 few people involved in this whole operation who knew the intricate workings of these systems yeah i think that's where you see the problem of when you're training someone only to do their job and they don't have any context for how that job happens or what role they play in it you to get you get this problem of people not understanding the whole system and and when things go wrong that's not good this is connected back to that radio chatter where, where they were kind of talking about valves seemingly operating on their own not knowing what was happening 
easily could be an actual electrical malfunction, could also just be someone not knowing exactly what they're looking at or how to fix it. So several opened ballast system valves allowed water to enter the forward ballast tanks. It's proposed, but not confirmed, that some of the issues with valves and ballast tanks can be attributed to the inability of the crew to locate the correct circuit breaker switch to secure electrical power to the console. That's crazy. It is crazy if that is true, if that was what happened, that they couldn't locate a breaker box. And and the (laughs) the reason for this, the reason they're able to construct this, is that in the investigation, it really comes out that, yeah, there's definitely people on hand who knew what they would have done in that situation saying, Oh, this is an easy fix. You go to the circuit breaker, you shut down this and you can, you know, manually reset whatever. If that knowledge is confined to a small handful of people who aren't there, it doesn't help anyone. Yeah. I think that's like, you see that idea a lot. Um, and a lot of military applications where it's like, Hey, you need to learn the job of the guy like above you and below you, you know, mm-hmm. you're not the radio guy, but you need to know how to use it. If, right. if it comes down to it, because you don't want to be in that situation where you have no one at least competent in it. They don't have to be an expert, but they have to know how it works. Yeah, I think uh, thinking back to like the uh, that uh, fishing vessel in Alaska that we did, the, the Scandies Rose, uh, that one also. Rose. But yeah, Scandies Rose, I know that captain had a very uh, thorough training rotation of, you know, everyone knows how to do everything. Everyone knows how to properly send a mayday call. Everyone knows the emergency operations of the ship. So now we have we have these valves open and water is going into the forward ballast tanks when we don't necessarily want that. That's bad. This forward list now with these forward ballast tanks filling filling by mistake. This is not an intentional thing. Now this forward list leads to the flooding of the vessel's chain lockers. So this is where like the anchor chains are stored. From the report here regarding these chain lockers, and this is an interesting element of the design of the ship, testimony by former rig crewmen disclosed that they had never secured these openings against the action of the seas, nor did they have any appreciation for the flooding potential with which these unsecured openings posed to the rig. There was no history of flooding of these chain lockers. Testimony by former rig crewmen was confused as to whether or not there were actually covers provided for the purpose of securing these openings. Interesting. So this is an area of the ship that in no one's conception would ever be getting flooded in the first place. Mm -hmm. So there's really not even infrastructure in place to protect them against flooding. I would have to think, is that the point where things changed and they started knowing that they were going to have to issue the Mayday call and all that and began to evacuate because like if no one ever expects that to be flooded and it gets flooded, what do you do? It's very likely they don't know that the chain lockers are flooding because there's no sensors. There's no indicators to tell them that that's what Mm. the problem is. So if they think there's a problem, say they, you know, Hey, the ballast tanks are going haywire. We don't know what's wrong. The whole time they probably think that this list is just because of the ballast tanks. Okay. Whereas in fact, this other area is flooding and they don't really have a way to fix that with their just basic knowledge of, of the ballast system. So now we have this snowball of problems building up. Ballast tanks are filling. It's, it's listing forward. Listing forward, so these chain lockers are filling. Now, because this list is getting worse, now they can't even pump out the forward ballast tanks because of the list angle. Mm-hmm. Um, something we've talked about as early as the first episode. Once you get these severe lists, it really affects your ability to move 
liquid around because you don't have the right angle that you need. At a certain point, you're operating outside of the parameters of like what it was meant to operate in. And it's, mm-hmm. it's usually too late to fix it at that point. The report concluded that while someone with detailed knowledge of the ballast system would have been able to rescue the vessel from this situation, even, even at this you know, relatively late point with the severe list and these new areas being flooded, their conclusion was that the average control room operator or master would not have had the necessary sophistication or insight into the system's capabilities in order to take full advantage of its power and flexibility. Um, so another related issue here that they highlighted is the lack of detailed instructions regarding the use of and training in the operation of the Ocean Ranger's ballast system significantly contribute to this casualty. Had a training program and detailed instructions of the use of the ballast system been available, it is quite likely that the chain of events leading to the loss of the Ocean Ranger could have been broken at any time from the malfunction of the ballast control console to the point where a substantial flooding of the chain lockers had occurred. This is a part where it starts to remind me of air disasters. Mm-hmm. Um, recently been listening to Take to the Sky. And in you know several of those stories, you have an instance where something is a relatively simple fix. Mm-hmm. But because the problem can't be identified or you know the people involved don't recognize where the problem is, that simple fix gets, you know, you, you miss your chance to use it. And here, you know, saying, yeah, some of these more expert people could have saved this until relatively late, until basically the point where it's, you know, capsizing. There's ways to to work around this. Mm-hmm. But the people in position to do it just don't have the preparation for it. So there was possible confusion among the crew as to where the flooding was occurring. Like I said, interpreting it as an issue with the pontoons rather than the chain lockers. Even someone who knows a little bit more about the ship isn't conceiving of the chain lockers as something that's going to flood right no exposure suits were available to the crew of the ocean ranger leading to hypothermia being the major contributing cause in their deaths all 22 who recovered from the sea uh, showed signs of hypothermia and or drowning so in this case obviously those those two causes of death are connected Mm -hmm. at a certain point you you can't protect yourself from the water anymore and that's where you see people starting to drown but everyone showed signs of hypothermia because these suits weren't available we've seen the power that those suits have those exposure suits those survival suits we talked about Um, also the scandies rose you've got guys surviving for you know like three four hours out in these conditions simply because of this this piece of equipment yeah and like you can see that like in a lot of these conditions within 15 minutes like already your thinking and your physical and your motor skills they diminish quickly. Mm-hmm. And like once they're gone, you've got things like the story where the guy's throwing the life r- ring over and no one's able to do anything with it. Yeah. And this is this is the middle of February off of Newfoundland. I, yeah. I'm sure it was somewhere. I didn't see a, a water temperature for the time. But yeah, I mean, you're talking you're, you're lucky to have minutes in that mm-hmm. situation. Standby vessels proved to be inadequate for rescue from the water. So as we talked about before, the life rings, ropes, life rafts, all of that required active participation from the individuals being rescued. And you simply can't expect that in Mm -hmm. a situation like this. Ocean Ranger's booklet of operating conditions was not a readily usable document for onboard personnel. So this is described basically as a document that existed to, you know, check all the boxes for regulatory purposes, but not to be a useful 
or even usable reference for the crew. The true value of documents, such as the operations manual, is that they assist the user in the performance of his job. If they are not produced with the user's needs and capabilities in mind, their value is considerably diminished, and whatever regulatory intent that exists mandating them is frustrated. That was an interesting part because that that's something you can apply more widely to any sort of industry. Absolutely. I I think about this with work. We're going through some software redesigns of like our main software that we use to get, you know, coordinate everything. And they love to send out these fancy things with like a wall of information and a wall of numbers. And the feedback I constantly give is that if you don't make this easy to use, no one's going to use it because everyone knows how to use the old way. Mm-hmm. You have to make things user friendly, no matter what it is, or people won't do it. Yeah, you have to think about, okay, what is my goal in making this? Is it so I can get through this audit or whatever it may be? Or is it so that people can actually benefit from it? I mean, we, the company I work for in just a, a month or so, we have a a reaccreditation audit that we're going to be going through. And so looking through a lot of documentation and yeah, sometimes I'll get into that. I'll say like, um, you know, this document that we're using, this reference that we're using, whatever it may be, is this something that's here because it technically satisfies all the boxes they're looking for? Or is this something that we can actually use? Because that's ultimately the goal of all this documentation that we do. We want teachers, we want staff to be able to benefit from them. Yeah. I think there's an art to making a document like that usable. Mm -hmm. Um, I think sometimes you're almost better getting 80% of the information in a usable form than 100% of it in a non-usable form. I think a good example of this is like checklists that pilots use. If you go back to like the Miracle on the Hudson and stuff like that, a lot of that is checklists and guys knowing what to look at right away to get the information to make a decision and then you act on it. Like I think that's the ultimate in streamlined information process. That's really the issue here is that there's no quick reference for these people. Have a basic understanding of the ballast system. If there's maybe a on-hand guide, a checklist, what are, what should they be looking for? What boxes can they tick? I think that's a one of those lessons you can draw from this that's far more widely applicable than just mm-hmm. operating an oil rig, but letting us think about why do we do the things we do? I don't care what industry you're in. Like Everyone has the same basic problems. You can boil them all down to some of the same problems. There's like four different problems you can have in life. <laughs> right. Basically, the Coast Guard also found a general issue with certification requirements for senior personnel. Though tool pushers were well trained in the drilling operations aspects of a mobile offshore drilling unit, there are no indication that they were familiar with or trained in the Coast Guard regulations of marine aspects of the rig in order to properly discharge their duties as a person in charge. So this gets into the odd setup of who is manning the ship and who is in charge of the ship. You've got, you know, like they said, this tool pusher, he's an expert in how to run an oil rig, but not necessarily an expert in how to run a ship. Um, So in addition to the Coast Guard report, there was the Royal Commission uh, that was also held, and their goal was addressing three main questions. Why did the Ocean Ranger capsize and sink? Why did none of the crew survive? And how can other similar disasters be avoided? And this is by the Canadian government? Yes. This commission? Okay. So the commission's interesting in that it starts with the specific scenario of the Ocean Ranger, and it makes a point of expanding the findings out to be applicable to the industry more generally. A lot of times with the reports we read, whether it's the MAIB or the Coast Guard, a lot of times they they have very 
sort of precisely constructed language mm-hmm. so as not to over apply findings. You know, sometimes that's what they need to do. Uh, but in general, they are pretty circumspect in how they address these scenarios. Here, the the goal was to take this and take whatever, you know, broad conclusions we can make from it. I feel like that's definitely the approach that um, like air crash investigations tend to use that, you know, there's a common saying that, you know, every plane crash makes the industry just even more safe because mm-hmm. you figure out where the the problem was and you right. correct it. So the commission found a general lack of training to be an issue. The operation of the ballast control system was known to be one of the major causes of the sinking. And according to the commission. Persons assigned to operate the ballast control system, which is critical to the stability of the semi-submersible, were not required by any regulations to have formal training. (laughs) That doesn't sound right. I talked about on-the-job training. (laughs) And this was basically that. I mean, you, you didn't necessarily have people who, who signed on as ballast control room operators. It was more a matter of, hey, like, we need someone to do this. Here's how to do it. Here's the basics. Push this button. Don't push this button. It's crazy that you literally need more certification to drive a forklift for like a trucking <laughs> company than you would have to operate the ballast tanks on an oil rig. Yeah. And just thinking about like, a- as we see here, the consequences of if you make a mistake with this, you can destroy this enormous, super, super expensive oil rig. So the report went further, saying that, indeed, had the crew only closed the dead lights, shut off the electrical and air supplies to the panel, cleaned up the water and glass, and then retired for the evening, Ocean Ranger and its crew would have survived the storm that night. That's crazy. So this confirms some of the suspicions from the Coast Guard, that human error in the control room likely contributed to the sinking. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those situations where, back with air disasters, sometimes we have a situation where if the pilots had done nothing, mm-hmm. everything would have been fine. And I, I don't know that this is quite a comparable situation, but the it certainly looks like the overactivity of the control room contributed to the actual sinking. Operating under the assumption that they were fixing the problem when, in fact, they were probably making it worse. Mm -hmm. So the commission recommended changes to the search and rescue protocols, which had proven to be obviously ineffective. It was recommended that modern long range rescue helicopters be on hand in St. John's. uh, And this would replace the those inadequate helicopters that had been used in the Ocean Ranger sinking. Those were basically useless for rescue operations. That's just not what they were for. It's interesting that like this time period, you know, the Marine Electric hasn't happened, but it'll happen soon. I think we're finally getting to that point where like helicopters are common enough, cheap enough and capable enough that it's like, well, why aren't we using these for search mm-hmm. and rescue? Um, so by July 1985, the Canadian government had enacted 90 of the commission's 136 recommendations. Relatively quick response here um, based on what this commission had found. The search and rescue infrastructure was upgraded to have three fixed wing aircraft and three rescue helicopters, which pretty far exceeded the commission's request or their recommendation. Life-saving equipment requirements were drastically increased with rigs expected to carry enough lifeboats and survival suits for twice the number of crew on board. Okay. Before that, there had been, I guess you could call it a loophole of saying, if you don't want to provide survival suits, you have to have X amount of like extra lifeboat space to sort of cover the bases. 
And what this commission basically concluded is that those two things aren't uh, comparable to one another. Um, you can't you can't replace survival suits with lifeboats because they have somewhat different functions. And the survival suit is ultimately the thing that's going to save your life here. That's going to give you a much better survival chance. You, you could have a thousand lifeboats on board, but if you don't have these survival suits, you still might not have any survivors. Getting into more of the later aftermath, the legal settlements. Always we we get into these issues of after the tragedy itself, all, after all of the the loss. There's still kind of that open wound of the the settlements, the money, for lack of a better word. So in several episodes, we've had to discuss financial compensation for loss of life. Uh, some of them being you know pretty insultingly low, while others you know we we've discussed being more appropriate. Key issue here being there's no way to assess the cost of a human life. Yeah. For the family of those who are involved. There's no amount of money that's going to bring this person back or make their loss easier to handle. Um, so Susan Dodd, the author of The Ocean Ranger Remaking the Promise of Oil, she has a really interesting perspective on this as her brother Jim was one of the 84 men lost on The Ocean Ranger. When they settle out of court... Families are forced to translate their loss into financial terms. Accepting money closes a family's right to pursue private vengeance. Exchange of blood money is not about finding a just price or reasonable compensation. It is about reintegrating both parties into the community of exchange so that the suit is settled amicably and without admitting liability. As my family's out-of-court agreement with Mobile, Schlumberger, Adeco, and Mitsubishi put it. My sarcastic big brother's death helped finance my decade-long stay in university. But the money was always problematic. It was not compensation in any meaningful sense, and it was laughable to think that the mobile Odeco, Mitsubishi, and Schlumberger considered 25000 a significant punishment. So what was this money? It was our due, yet somehow shameful. So overall, the companies involved paid out $20 million for the initial claimants committee settlement, in addition to undisclosed amounts to families who settled individually. And in chapter three of her book, uh, Susan Dodd, actually, she goes into pretty detailed history of this idea of blood money, you know, compensation for for a, a wrongful death throughout history and the precedents established for using it in modern legal systems. I'm super interested in this because this becomes like the kind of nexus of like shipwrecks and businessy stuff, which I both mm -hmm. find interesting. It's interesting that apparently they didn't make her sign a like non-disclosure agreement because clearly she's talking about it. Mm -hmm. But also like what better use of that money but to go to school and then write books about how horrible these companies are. Like right. that probably is like the most righteous use of that money to try to turn it around on these companies. And also regarding anything like an NDA, I mean, it could have been a time thing because this book came true. out in 2012. That's true. That very well um, could have been. So I don't know if there was like a 20, 25 year, whatever. That's possible also. This is an incident that's pretty well represented in media. So like we said, those two books that helped a lot in researching this episode, Mike Heffernan's book, Rig, An Oral History of the Ocean Ranger Disaster, and Susan Dodd's The Ocean Ranger Remaking the Promise of Oil, um, in 2002, there was a documentary released called The Ocean Ranger Disaster. I believe it's on YouTube. Okay. I didn't watch it yet. There's a song called Atlantic Blue by Ron Hines that's written in honor of this. I listened to it. It's all right. It's fine. <laughs> it's a song. Um, it's not like a 
ballad style necessarily. It's it doesn't like tell the story of it. Um, mm-hmm. More of a in honor of that was fine. Give it a listen. <laughs> I'm not putting it on the Beyond the Breakers Spotify playlist. Gotcha. Uh, there's also a novel by Lisa Moore called February uh, that mm-hmm. was published in 2009. That one's interesting because uh, it was actually nominated for the Man Booker Prize. Okay. That's a, I mean, it's a pretty prestigious prize for literature. It's uh, for books published in, I think it's technically for, for books that are published in the UK. I think it used to be for like Commonwealth authors, mm-hmm. but now it's a bit more general there. But yeah, the, that book, February, I have a copy of it. I have not gotten into it really yet beyond just the opening chapter. And to wrap up this portion, I, I kind of wanted to read part of it. Okay. So this is from the first chapter of that novel. The Ocean Ranger began to sink on Valentine's Day 1982 and was gone by dawn the next day. Every man on it died. Helen was 30 in 1982. Cal was 31. It took three days to be certain the men were all dead. People hoped for three days. Some people did. Not Helen. She knew they were gone and it wasn't fair that she knew. She would have liked the three days. People talk about how hard it was not knowing. Helen would have liked not to know. She envied the people who knew that the winds were 90 knots and could still show up at the Basilica in a kind of ecstasy of faith. Three denominations were at the altar for the Ocean Ranger Mass, and the whole city came out. They didn't call it a memorial service. Helen doesn't remember what they called the mass or if they called it anything or how she came to be there. What she remembers is that no reference was made to the men being dead. So I like that we talked about the community impact of these things where Mm -hmm. people who are around this, people who are in the know, um, they kind of know the situation that they're dealing with. They know that this rig has sunk. They're not finding anyone. And within a few hours you know if, if you're part of this community you you know that there's 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 no hope at all for these for these people who are lost mm-hmm. um you simply don't survive multiple hours out in in these conditions yeah i would imagine with most of the crew being from newfoundland um the maritime history that's associated with it like no one's holding out false hope necessarily i think everyone's probably pretty uh realistic when it comes to this it's not the first Mm -hmm. time they've probably dealt with something like this this is this kind of the wrap-up segment to the to the episode and i think this was a a good one to do to start season three it is kind of stretching our legs a little bit in terms of the topics that we're we uh we want to cover and i think this one's interesting looking at the oil industry in sort of modern day oil industry is kind of one of the one of the ugly poster children of capitalism yeah with its general emphasis on profitability over everything else, you know, whether that's individual safety or environmental concerns, you know, we didn't really have the environmental aspects here that we usually would expect with an oil rig disaster. It did highlight those major issues with the industry and how business was being conducted related to what you were just saying. You know, I was just listening to an episode of take to the sky this morning and they brought up that saying of how, um, I forget how they expressed it, but, uh, Every safety regulation is written in blood. Mm -hmm. Someone died for all of these things that we now know as best practices um, and the way that we conduct business. And I think this is a 
a very stark example of that. Uh, you, you see the rapid response from the government trying to change some of these things. So it sort of tells you that this was always possible. This would have been possible before this happened, but there's the, we, we always need that really cruel reminder of, of what we need to do to make these things safer. Mm-hmm. I did enjoy researching this one. This was a very heavy topic, especially that Mike Heffernan book is is a very tough read at parts because it is that more oral history, personal tellings of these things. And so people express them in in their own ways. Um, and sometimes they're expressed in you know, very raw and like cutting language. So definitely a good read to to get a sense of, of this. Um, and yeah, I, I, I picked up a lot from this one. Even just reading like the quotes from Susan Dodd there of, you know, what's my, what's this money even for? Mm-hmm. That's a, uh, that's a deep topic, you know, yeah. of, of getting into things like that, of what, how do how do I value my brother's life? That mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it, uh, yeah, like we said, we always want to talk about the human impact in these stories. And I mean, in this one, I had not even heard of this and what 88 people lost their lives in it. So there's a lot of stories to be told there. I think it's it's super interesting to shed a little light on it. All right. So I guess that wraps things for our first episode of season three. We hope you enjoyed this one and we will be back with you next week.